Christian Pulisic is the guy that when you have thrown challenges in front of him, so far he has been able to rise to the occasion. I think he would rise to this occasion and while maybe not starting every single game, would give Jurgen Klopp and everybody there something to think about. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be discussing Christian Pulisic's future. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. We'll be answering your questions in our Ask Alexi segment. We'll continue with our World Cup Date segment and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you, Mr. Mossy? I am good. Uh, I am wearing a Brazil national team jersey today. The story here is that Brazil played England in the summer of 1995 at Wembley in a tournament called the Umbro Cup. Mm-hmm. Brazil won 3-1. Warren Barton featured in that match. And at the final whistle, he swapped jerseys with a Brazilian player named Edmundo, the animal. The animal. And I mentioned to Warren a couple years ago that Edmundo was one of my favorite players. And so Warren very generously gave me the jersey. Wow. Yeah. That Warren Barton. Yeah, he is incredible. Now, you, you like Edmundo and liked Edmundo because of his crazy personality and his animalistic type of style, both on and off the field? Or what was it that attracted you to this player? I also thought he was a great player. He was. He yes, was a great yes. player, and oftentimes the antics... By the way, he played in that 1998 Gold Cup semifinal, Preki. The... I know it well. I was yeah, there. Yeah. I was running around trying to stop him. Yeah. But if you uh, notice, last three weeks, I wore a jersey that was a gift from Max Odenheimer. Mm-hmm. Then I wore a warm-up kit that was a gift from Eric Winalda, and today a jersey that was a gift from Warren Barton. I'm trying to send you a message, Alexi. Hopefully you're getting It's good it. to have hopes and dreams as a young man, Mossy. Uh, they don't always come true. I hate to break it to you, but you never know. Uh, Keep, keep dreaming and keep sending me those messages, and maybe someday there will be something nice for you. All right, enough about what we want and what we hope and we dream. Let's get to this. Are you ready? Yep. All right, let's light this candle. Up first, as always, Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it is time for my State of the Union. Each week, I look at the state of soccer as it relates to the United States. Christian Pulisic isn't a great American player. He's a great player who happens to be American. There's a distinction, and it's important. For most American players, success is often framed in a red, white, and blue context, and it can often be a hindrance or a burden. Compliments are qualified. He's really good for an American. But Pulisic has quickly transcended his nationality, so much so that it now appears that Liverpool are hot to bring him to the EPL in what would potentially be a record transfer fee for an American, somewhere in the rumored $70 million range. Now keep in mind the previous record transfer fee for an American was $24 million for John Brooks back in 2017. So yeah, that's a big number for any nationality. Don't get me wrong, Pulisic being American certainly makes him even more attractive from a business perspective as teams look to expand their global brand and capitalize on the emerging and growing U.S. market. But Jurgen Klopp's job is to win. And if he wants Pulisic, it's not because he's trying to sell jerseys, tickets, or sponsorships. The challenge for any American player has often been about getting people to forget you're American. But at the age of 19, Christian Pulisic has already pulled off that feat. Okay, so that's been my State of the Union for this week about young Christian Pulisic. Mossy, thoughts on uh, Mr. Pulisic and his future? Well, first off, that was not a bad monologue for an American. (laughs) But listen, you never know with this transfer stuff. There were reports circulating today that Liverpool had reached a deal with Nabil Fakir, the playmaker for Lyon, which I guess would have blown up the Pulisic thing, but then Klopp came out and said those were untrue. They've been linked with Ousmane Dembele. So who knows? But the Pulisic stuff makes sense because Klopp is supposedly a big fan of his back from when Klopp was still at Dortmund and Pulisic was coming up the youth system. Here's my question to you. What if he's not being brought there to replace anybody? Uh, Klopp just wants to add Pulisic to the squad they have. Would you be in favor of that kind of move for him now if it, would, if it could mean potentially playing less than he does at Dortmund? Yeah, see, so this is the rub here because I, I think it's a great move from an American perspective, as we talked about, but more so from a, from a Liverpool perspective. You are adding a, a incredible talent and one that is just getting better and better and better and is emerging and certainly is not the finished article. And you're probably going to get him, if we extrapolate it out and he continues to progress the way that he has, you're probably going to get him from a, from a business standpoint at less than what it, a few years from now he's going to be, is going to be worth. But 
I think everybody's fear, and it's certainly from the American soccer community, the fear is, look, this is a guy that's playing week in and week out, not always playing well, but at least is a principal member of this Dortmund team. He's comfortable there. They obviously like him. And maybe he needs another year of seasoning. And when you say seasoning, what comes with seasoning? Playing consistently. Because if he goes to Liverpool, then the question is, well, how much is he going to play, especially with that front three? And if Salah goes, then maybe there's an opening there, and maybe it's just a like-for-like replacement, dare I say it. Or if he doesn't go, how does he find his way into the, uh, the starting lineup there with a Liverpool that still has Salah? That's going to be the, the big difficulty. I still think it's the right thing for him to do, even if he, as you said, even if ultimately it means that he's playing less that he's playing for Liverpool, I think it's a step up. I think it's a step in the right direction. And I think ultimately this is a guy that when you have thrown challenges in front of him, still very early days, but so far he has been able to rise to the occasion. I think he would rise to this occasion. And while maybe not starting every single game, would give Jurgen Klopp and everybody there something to think about it week in and week out about, hey, you know, maybe I'm better off starting him. Or at the very least, this guy needs to be in the 18, and he's my first substitute. Well, if he replaces Salah, he'd be replacing the second best player in the world, according to you. Um, <laughs> if you listen to the State of the Union podcast, you know. Now, I've voiced concern about uh, the Premier League, the fact that they don't protect flair players as much as I think they should. Mm-hmm. Any concern there about Pulisic going there? Do you think his style of play would fit the Premier League just fine? I think he is He's, he's more... Uh, durable than people give him credit for. Now, he's going to get jacked up anywhere that he goes, and people are going to try to muscle him because he's not a very big big uh, player in terms of his stature, his physical stature, and he loves to just push that ball by you and then, and then go. I don't think it's going to be a problem. I don't think they're going to break him physically when it comes to the challenges that he is going to see. I think the quickness of the league uh, in terms of how quickly they play I think it's going to be something for him to adjust to, but I think that he has no problem uh, problem adjusting. And while I talked in the State of the Union about the fact that this is being done for soccer purposes, Liverpool, while still being one of the most interesting teams on the planet, just got that much more interesting for Americans, myself, and many people that will look for where Americans are playing to gravitate towards a, a team. And even if you even if you like Everton or you like a, another team in the EPL. The intrigue and the interest and the curiosity of seeing a Liverpool that features an American and features Christian Pulisic, I think that's going to be hard for people to turn their nose up to. Now, Liverpool very much in the spotlight right now because of this Champions League run. But you said on TV this past week that you're still not sold that they're a final destination for players. So could you see a scenario where Pulisic goes there this summer, plays really well the next couple of years, and then we're talking about Real Madrid-Barcelona a couple of years from now? Is there still that move in him, perhaps? Yes, but keep in mind, and this is the other thing we mentioned, we are recording this on a, uh, on a Sunday morning, and so uh, this happened right after Chelsea got a big win. So Liverpool is still not even assured that top four, that Champions League spot. So they, they are still fighting for some things. So we talked about this. Is this an anomaly? Is this a situation where if you're playing for Real Madrid, you're playing for Barcelona, even playing for PSG, you know year in and year out right now with the amount of talent you have, the amount of money that you spend, and just the track history over the last five, ten years, you're going to be there. Are you going to say the same about Liverpool? Because this is a surprise to everybody that they are in this position. Is this a start of a run, or is this that spike that then they come back to uh, reality next year and they're not there? That, that is, I don't think that's necessarily a problem for Christian Pulisic. That might be a, a concern and a talking point when it comes to what Liverpool is. But, man, they are flying right now. But can they recapture that? This isn't a, um, this isn't a Leicester type of a scenario. But... They have to be able to recapture this magic next year and go forward and prove that it wasn't just uh, just a fluke in order to attract uh, additional talent and to kind of keep up this, right now, this global phenomenon and worldwide interest and curiosity in, in Liverpool again. Because, listen, they certainly have a wonderful history, and this isn't the first time that we've been infatuated with Liverpool, but certainly of late and in this time in, in, uh, in space when it comes to what they are, everybody, they're turning heads all over the place, as they should. And from the Dortmund perspective, I've mentioned this before, they do not want to be a selling club. They play in an 80,000-seat stadium that's sold out every week. They get tons of sponsors. They generate a lot of revenue. They want to be a final destination, hold on to players, 
and compete with Bayern, but they're just not a final destination. I mean, there's no debate. There's years of empirical evidence now that players just don't view it as that. Uh, even when they won back-to-back Bundesliga titles under Klopp, they got to a Champions League final. Mario Götze didn't think twice about going to Bayern. Same thing with Lewandowski. Same thing with Hummels. Uh, recently, Mkhitaryan, Gunnigan, Dembele, Aubameyang, they've all left. So I think there's a sense of resignation there that, yeah, whether we like it or not, we are kind of a selling club in the current landscape. So if they get a big enough offer, especially because they do have Jadon Sancho now, who they like just as much, so they could rationalize that the move is to cash in on Pulisic, keep Sancho for another couple of years. So I don't think there's any issue from the Dortmund perspective. If there's a big enough offer, I think... Well, they might not be able to keep Sancho when he leads England to the World Cup this summer <laughs> after being the last uh, pick and getting but, that. But you, you certainly don't... <laughs> see Dortmund as a long-term prospect for whether it's this summer or next summer within the next couple of years he needs to go and and I don't buy this argument about we're gonna we're gonna break the the kid I know as Americans uh, American soccer fans we think about oh you know we're pushing this uh, player too far uh, too fast and we're pumping this person up and hyping look everywhere in the world when there are young phenoms they're going to get hyped up. They're going to get the attention. And yes, you have to be strategic in the way that you go about with your, your, your career. But him making a move from Dortmund to Liverpool, okay, yes, it's a step up. It's not completely out of the realm of where he could possibly be successful. So I don't think that this is putting him into a situation where he can't succeed. If this guy really is what we think he is, then he will figure it out. I have, I have all the faith in the world that, that if he goes to this next level, which would be a move to Liverpool, uh, or other, other clubs, but certainly we're talking about Liverpool right now, that he would excel, that he would find a way to make himself better and find a way to make himself valuable. And you're not going to break him. This guy is, is strong in body and strong in mind, amazingly so for such a young player. Uh, last question for me. Is there a club out there you'd rather see him go to, or do you think Liverpool would be the perfect next step? Um... Unless it's, uh, I, I, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing him going to Bayern Munich. And, and you know, obviously that's within, within Germany. But I think there you're talking about playing time. I think with what's going on with Robin and Ribéry and the changes that are going on, I think he may have a better chance. Let's say Salah doesn't go anywhere. I think he has a better chance of making a bigger impact and playing more going to Bayern Munich as opposed to Liverpool. If, if the opportunity to come to Bayern, go to Bayern Munich arises... I would think real, real carefully and hard about that. And I'd, I'd have a hard time. Oh, that's a real interesting balance. I, I almost, I'm, I'm tempted to say that it would be better for him to go to Bayern Munich than it would be Liverpool. From a soccer perspective, I'm not talking about his brand or the brands of, of these teams. But I think where Bayern Munich is right now, it's almost, it's, it's almost the perfect place for him. It's this moment in time where there are, I think there are going to be more opportunities than Liverpool. Either way, I think he's going to succeed, but maybe the speed or the height of his success, I think it could happen sooner and maybe better in the short term if he were to go to a place like Bayern Munich. Okay, fascinating stuff with regards to Christian Pulisic. We'll see where he is after this summer. Moving on. Mossy makes the case. Yes, it's time for Mossy Makes the Case. The point in the pod where David Mossy makes a case about what he feels needs to happen on or off the field in soccer. David, what are you going to tell the folks about this week? Alexi, I wanted to address a subject that I don't think has been talked about that much over the last 10 years. Messi versus Ronaldo. (laughs) Uh, this was a request by our producer, Francis Silva, a big Barcelona fan. She felt like on the occasion of another El Clasico, which we're going to discuss in the back three segment, I should take stock of where we are on the whole Messi-Ronaldo thing. And I submit to you, there isn't that much debate over who the better player is, at least among people in the game. When you, when you hear players and coaches interviewed about it, and they actually give a thoughtful answer, they don't just say, well, I'd love to have them both. They, they tend to side with Messi all for the same reason. Fabio Capello summed it up recently. He said, Ronaldo is a great goal scorer. Messi is a great goal scorer and a great playmaker. And that's where I land on it. I think what separates Messi is the passing, the vision, the ability to play in the middle of the field, have everything run through him, create every chance for his team. Messi, Barcelona, plays the role of Ronaldo and Isco somehow at the same time, which is amazing. So I'm, I'm in the camp that he's on a different level from any other player in the world. But there's a big but coming here. 
Ronaldo is getting to the point where his career looks better on paper in terms of trophies, awards, records, and that's the stuff that endures. When you watch these morning shows, these knuckleheads like Skip Bayless and Colin Cowherd debating who the best quarterback of all <laughs> time colleagues, is or Jordan versus LeBron, it's all about, well, this guy's won X amount of championships, this guy's won Y. Uh, it's not, oh, this guy was a, was a better passer, this guy's a better defensive, but they don't break down their games. They make it about comparing their achievements, and I think this dynastic Champions League run that Real Madrid are having here. If they beat Liverpool, it'll be four and five years. And all the ballon d'or that Ronaldo's collecting as a result, if this keeps going for another couple of years, it's going to get to a point where his career is clearly going to look better on paper. And I think future generations are going to feel like Ronaldo was the greater player. Now, here's my question to you. You've been asked uh, in multiple platforms in, over the last couple of weeks to give rankings of the best players in the world. Mm-hmm. What is your criteria? Do you think about their games and who you like better or the stats or who's more important to their team? Or how did you sort of approach that? Okay, so uh, as, as you mentioned, this is an evergreen topic, and it's never going to go away, and it's never going to be solved or answered sufficiently for, for either side. And that's maybe in that, that in itself is, is a testament to how great these two players are and how lucky we are to be living in this moment to be able to see them play on a consistent basis. You, you talked about people in the game, okay? This, this conversation, this debate is not limited to them. So, and first off, uh, I... I, I understand what you're saying, but everybody's opinion about this is valid. Uh, no, and, and when you talk about coaches and players and, stu- and stuff like that, I, c- I can respect what Capello is saying. When I get asked this question, I get asked this question almost every single day if somebody does it. So if I'm on Periscope or if I'm on Twitter, or if I'm on Facebook or, what, or any of the social media out there, at some point this, this question comes up because I guess everybody just holds out faith that at some point they are going to get an answer that they like. And maybe you got that answer from uh, <laughs> Fabio Capello. For me, I always fall when, I, when, when I'm asked to this on the Ronaldo side. And the reason why, and one of the things that separates it, isn't necessarily the, the on the paper thing, but I appreciate and value people that can be valuable in multiple contexts, that can be valuable in multiple places, that have the ability to adapt, they have the ability to change, they have the ability to absorb different people that are next to them, different platforms that they're on, uh, different circumstances, different, uh, just different scenarios that they are thrown into. The fact that Cristiano Ronaldo has done it for multiple teams, for me, that is, in, that, is ver- that is very important to me. Now, you're going to say, well, you know, Messi started in, in, as a youth and he just is in this, in this cocoon. You're absolutely right. Not only has he been in the Barcelona cocoon, but this cocoon specifically has been manufactured for him to keep him warm. Now, I'm saying all this not, not as a, a, a criticism of him, but if there is going to be this compare and contrast, the fact that Ronaldo, for me, has gone to multiple teams and has been able to star, that, to me, trumps Messi when, in this back and forth. I recognize what you're saying. And I don't think we're ever going to see and be able to ultimately have that true comparison because I don't think Messi's ever going to go anywhere. I think he's going to retire at Barcelona, and he will retire a legend, and he will never be forgotten for what he did, not just the, the numbers that, that, he, that he generated, but just the joy that he generated, not just for Barcelona fans, but for, but for everybody. But when I come down uh, and, and I'm asked this question, ultimately for me it comes down to I think that doing it at multiple places, because they're, they're, they're so equal – for me, that that just puts him a little bit ahead. No, I actually agree with that point, but I would put that under the career better on paper category. Uh, I know it's sort of semantics, but to me, that falls under a little differently than sort of breaking down their games and this guy's a better passer and this guy's a better fan. You know, to me, that's sort of a separate element of comparing two players. And then there's the sort of achievements. And I would say succeeding in two different leagues versus one falls under the achievements category. So, but I agree with you. That, that, that's a big feather in Ronaldo's cap. I, I put a lot of weight in that as well. The fact that he did it in the Premier League first and then went to La Liga. Now, when you put together your list, you had Mo Salah above Messi. Right. And a big criticism was, well, he's only done it for one season. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, Grant Wall reported on our show that Real Madrid aren't prepared yet to throw all this crazy money at Mo Salah because they want to see him do, do this again. Everybody feels like this season has been so out of context with the rest of his career. He's been a good player, but he's bounced around different teams. And now at 25, 26, having this kind of season, people are still kind of wrapping their heads around it. How do you address that criticism? Like, how long does a player have to do it before that becomes his level and this is who he is? And do you feel like, is it sort of a case-by-case basis? You know it when you see it. Like, you just genuinely think, like, Mo Salah, this is what he is now? I, I wasn't going 
going to take into account what Messi has done, which is legendary and is in no way comparable to what Mo Salah has done. I was living in the moment. That's the question that I was asked. That's what I wanted. That's what. That's how I wanted to answer it. And I also, when I want to, when I was talking about putting Mo Salah ahead of Messi, if for those that listened. I also said that if Messi were to go this summer and were to win the World Cup for Argentina, that would change everything. But in this moment, for where Mo Salah is, comparable to where Messi is, and I know what, what's happening with Barcelona right now is, is wonderful and should be celebrated, that's why, that's why I put him uh, above. Is it an aberration? It very well may be. A year from now, we, be, we, we may be looking at each other and saying, remember that Mo Salah guy? You remember, remember just that brief shining light that burned ferociously and then completely crashed into the ocean? I'm, I don't know if that's going to happen. It may very well happen. But at this moment, for me, that's why I ranked him above Messi. Now, if you're going to take into totality everything that something has done, that's a completely different conversation. And by the way, if you're going to do that, then you have to include players that aren't playing right now for what, the, what they have done. And then that gets into a whole best five players of all time. That's, that's what wasn't what we were doing when we were doing our top five list. But when it comes down to Messi and Ronaldo, you're still full on Messi because you think that he can not only score goals, but can create. If that's the case, if it were to happen that we were to see him play another, uh, at another team, if Messi went and played for PSG, do you think he would be the same Messi? Do you think he would have the same type of impact? I do, but he hasn't done it, so uh, I know, I, Ronaldo I, I, actually I has. Yeah. But you now, do think. But, but do you give any credence to that argument of, of a player being able to do other things besides score? Because I'll tell you something sure. pretty surprising to me. I was talking to diehard Liverpool fan Keith Costigan this past week about the whole Mo Salah thing and where does, he, where does he rank. And he said something to me that I thought was interesting. He said, actually, he thinks Salah is the third best player on the Liverpool front three. Ooh. That he's been the guy scoring all the goals, but he actually thinks Firmino and Mane are better all-around players than Salah. That is the hottest of takes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so that's a guy so, putting, yeah. putting, so he a, would not even, not only is, is he not put Salah as the second, as the number two player in the world right now, he doesn't even put him as the top, in the top two of his own team. Okay. Interesting take. Now that, that is going the other extreme and really valuing other things more than goals. So how, how do you reconcile a guy being the guy that like Ronaldo and Salah, who's scoring all the goals versus, you know, judging a player's all around game? How do you, so so here, who would be more influential? And this goes back to, to what I said about him going to PSG. Because that, that's, that's what, I, what I really think we would find out how important and valuable and good players are is if Messi went to a bad team or if Cristiano went to a bad team and see them in an environment where they are not surrounded by some of the greatest talent and see what they could do. Could they, on their own, take a team on their shoulders and, and do that? Now, some may argue that to a certain extent, both of them, from a national team perspective, had have done that at different at different times. But I'm saying, go to a piss poor team, go, go <laughs> one that one that's in the bottom, one that's fighting for relegation. If it's over in MLS, if he were to be dropped into uh, who's who's horrible right now, uh, uh, DC United or something like that, would he fundamentally change it, or who would who would change that team for the better? quicker and who would do it more would it be Cristiano Ronaldo because he might be just sitting on an island up there saying I'm not getting any service I'm not getting the ball or anything like that and Messi might be saying well I'm gonna coming back and I'm getting the ball and I'm making myself involved and th that creation that you're talking about but these guys can't they, these guys can't fit it. I think it's a fascinating thing to 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 dream about and, and to, to to think about how it would end we're never going to see it like you mentioned but it's fun to talk about uh, last thing, uh, how much credence do you give to international stuff, World Cups? Because I can tell you, in Brazil, as we've watched over the last 10 years, Messi and Ronaldo blow by a lot of Brazilian players on the all-time greatest players list. The thing that Brazilians still cling to is that World Cup thing. Well, well, they've never won a World Cup. Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, won one. Rom actually, won twi twice, but he didn't play in 94, so I don't count that. Uh, Romario won one. So they still cling to that, that that should carry more weight than it does. A player winning a World Cup versus not. If, if Messi and Ronaldo both bomb out this summer and end their careers, never having won a World Cup, when it comes time to come up with these all-time great lists, how much will you knock them down for that? Is that a big deal to you? It will be because they play for – it'll be less so for Cristiano Ronaldo because he plays for Portugal. It will be more so for Messi because he plays for Argentina and has had the opportunity and ultimately couldn't do it. Yeah, the issue for Ronaldo – 
Who knows? I don't think he's in under, under, under any obligation to win a World Cup because, like you mentioned, Portugal don't have that pedigree. But it'd be nice if he had a good one. He really hasn't had a good World Cup yet. Yep. Uh, and, you know, this will be his fourth crack at it. I mean, in 2014, it's funny. He, he gets a total pass for World Cups because he played poorly. They got knocked out on the group stage. And as we talked about last week, he still won the Ballon d'Or. There was no controversy. I never hear when people talk about Ronaldo's legacy, the World Cup thing brought up. But it's brought up all the time with Messi. So, you know, so, yeah, that, that's another interesting element to this whole thing. All right. To sum this up, you're for Messi. You're Team Messi. I'm Team Ronaldo when it comes to this inevitable uh, who's better that is not going to go away. It's going to continue on. Let us know what you think. Do you agree with my friend uh, David Mossy? Do you agree with me when it comes to Cristiano? Let us know on, on Twitter and Facebook and all the different things. Scream and yell at us. Uh, we could both be wrong. Who, who knows? But this is not going away. I guarantee we will talk about it again, and it's fun to talk about. All right. Thank you, Mr. Mossy, for making the case this week. Moving on. Ask Alexi. Okay, as you heard, it's time for our Ask Alexi segment, that segment where we answer your questions with the Ask Alexi hashtag that you have sent in on Facebook, on Twitter, on all the different social media platforms. Remember, include that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and then who knows, maybe someday David Mossy will be reading your questions right here on the State of the Union podcast as he is about to do. What do the people want to know, Mossy? All right, first up, at the Chappy Chaps. If the U.S., okay. Mexico, and Canada were to be awarded the 2026 World Cup, would the three countries be automatically qualified to play? Now, I don't think they've decided this yet, so I think we'll change this question to should all three countries. Uh, essentially, I don't think there's any debate about the U.S., but should a country like Canada that's hosting 10 games, uh, is that enough to, that they should get one of the automatic bid? Absolutely 100% if you are hosting a World Cup, either by yourself or joint, every host nation of that World Cup should be get an automatic bid. And so, yes, in 2026, unless something ridiculous happens, I would anticipate that all three countries would get an automatic bid, which from a CONCACAF standpoint will be interesting because we already know that it's an expanded World Cup, and so theoretically, CONCACAF is already going to get more. Now, do they take those three and include it in that three, and then everybody else is vying for a couple of other ones? Or do they just have the expanded amount of what CONCACAF's going to get? Either way, I think the good part from a CONCACAF perspective is there's a real good chance that we are going to see CONCACAF teams that either haven't been there in a long time or have never been qualifying for the World Cup. I think that's a good thing. But yeah, I think it's asinine to have a World Cup where a host country does not have an automatic bid. It is a celebration of the... Um, of the country. It's an advertisement for the country. It is also a platform that you are using to make your soccer better. And having your team there, even if your team goes out in the group stage, even if your team's not that good, is important. This is, this is, this is a battle for hearts and minds domestically oftentimes. In Qatar, we'll see how that, we'll see how that goes. But I, I, I can't fathom a World Cup that doesn't have the host countries getting an automatic bid. And as you know, I, I think the 48-team thing is an abomination. But no matter how often I explain the reason, people still don't address that point. I, it's not a dilution of quality issue. It's the format. I hate 16 groups of three. I'm concerned that you could have two teams playing the final match of a group knowing a score qualifies them both at the expense of the team that's idle. But no matter how often I say that, when people reply to me on Twitter, it's still like, oh, more soccer. It's nice to have more teams in there. What's wrong with that? They don't address the point that I'm bringing up, which, you know, I'm open to debating that if somebody wants to defend that format and think that it's actually going to work out all right, but uh, it never seems to happen. So w would you be good if, if it stayed groups of four? Uh, yeah, if, if they could, I don't object to 48 in, in theory. If they came up with a format that I thought made sense with 48 teams, I, I would be completely fine with it. it. It's strictly a format issue for me. Okay. But you, but you said it was a format issue in terms of the groups of three. So for me, that's, that's more problematic, a group of free, three. I don't care right. how many teams you have in it, but keep it groups of four because the whole strategy and the history of playing in a group of four, I don't want that to go away just because there are more teams in it. I want people to really understand. And I, I also want to kind of compare apples to apples with other World Cups that have happened before where there has been that group setting. I know it's expanded, but it's always been that group four. Can you be one of the two? At times, can you be one of the three in order to... Uh, to make the uh, to make the numbers there, but the strategy of how you approach each game changes w when you're when you're doing it in a group of four as opposed to when you're doing it in a group of three. I didn't even like the Euros going to 24. Uh, I know your U.S. team benefited from this in 94, but I don't like third place teams in a four team group advancing. I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, so yep. yeah, so I'm, I'm a big stickler for having a format that makes sense to me. It's not just about expanding teams to get more people in there. And you know. do, do you want to take back that shot against Canada, or uh, are you you good with that? 
shot against Canada. Yeah, you said, you, why should they qualify for a World Cup in 2026? No, I, I actually agree with you. I think they should qualify. But but they're the country that people have, because everybody assumes, uh, of course, the U.S. being the main host should get an automatic berth. And Mexico, everybody assumes, would qualify anyway. Canada is the one that's somewhat controversial because they're only hosting 10 matches. So some of the other CONCACAF nations are saying, well, they're going to take up a, a berth that, you know. Why do you hate the Canadians? What's, <laughs> what's your problem? All right, go on. What, Not what else all Canadians, have? just that Julie Stewart Binks. <laughs> um, at... Milk Carton 82, if you had to choose one midfielder to build a team around, who would you choose? So uh, let me think about this. Um, I want somebody that is going to, quote unquote, run the show. Now, I know in today's game that doesn't happen as much, but certainly someone like Luka Modric or David Silva, these types of players. And I know they're older and and maybe they are a dying breed, which is why the game is changing. I'm trying to think. Do you have, do you have one that's, that's younger that you would build around? But I think those, two, those are two examples that how they play, I think you can recognize that they are going to run the show. And then everything kind of, uh, there's tentacles out from those players with what they are. And you give them the proverbial keys to the car and you let them drive that. Yeah, I mean, Xavi is one of my favorite players of all time. So somebody... Uh, of that ilk. I mean, Kevin De Bruyne right now, I think, is generally considered the best midfielder in the world, but you wouldn't put him as your as your guy that you would build a team around? I, I don't see him as running the show, though. I, I, I see him as much more incisive and momentary, if, if, if you know what I mean, in that I don't think everything can... It, it can at times flow through him, but I don't think that there is this everybody looking to him, which is what you want if you're building something around uh, one, of the, one of those players. And that's, that's, not a sh- that's not a shot at him. It's just I don't see him as that one person that you're, you're starting point for building around. I also love Isco. He gets lost a little bit at Real Madrid, doesn't even start half the time. I think if he went to, say, the Premier League and had his own team that was built around him, I think he would be a superstar. I'm a huge Isco fan. Next, at Kevin1998, what do you think of Steven Gerrard to Rangers? So, Steven Gerrard, ex-Los Angeles Galaxy legend, um, <laughs> we know has been uh, coaching. Uh, well, he's been coaching over uh, Liverpool, right, for the youth, uh, youth teams down there. And uh, as any coach, he wants an opportunity. This opportunity came about. Correct me if I'm wrong, Rangers is a bit of a uh, tire fire right now. It is a, uh, and it has been now for, for a while, uh, both on and off the field, right? Correct. Correct. So, he is going into a uh, reclamation type of project. And... He can only make them better, I, I would suppose, right? I'm interested. I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm always intrigued when a player, which is, which is why we, we spend so much time talking about Zinedine Zidane. I'm always intrigued where you have an iconic player having to go into a situation now and explain. And yes, it's, it's very different than coaching a, a youth team. Uh, does he have the, the aspiration? Is this just something that's keeping him occupied or is he completely committed? I don't know. I have, I have no idea. And guess what? He might even be successful and we still might, we still might not know, but I, I'm intrigued. Rangers who, let's be honest, they don't register on my radar. Yeah, this registered. So from that perspective, uh, from a marketing perspective, this is, this is something interesting that once again puts them on people's radar. And I'll be interested to see how ultimately, uh, ultimately it goes. Do you Ranger, think this is going to be successful? Uh, Rangers pretty good tradition with Americans, though, through the years. Boca sure, Negra sure. played there, Beasley, uh, Maurice Adu, Bedoya, right at a cup of coffee there. Now, interesting, Brendan Rodgers and, and Steven Gerrard, uh, by all accounts, didn't get along that well. So that, that's an interesting subplot here. If, if Rodgers stays, he's been linked to some other jobs. But, yeah, I, I hope he's successful. I want Rangers back. I want that rivalry back. To me, uh, when that rivalry is going good, it's, it's, it's top three derbies in the world, along with Barcelona, Real Madrid that we saw today, and Boca River is the other one. And then Rangers, Celtic, to me, those are the top three. And I'm somebody that thinks that they were excessively hard with Rangers when they had their financial problems. And it was a classic. A case of, of cutting off your nose to spite your face because Rangers going down and not having that rivalry, to me, that killed that league. It's been completely irrelevant the last few years. So uh, I don't know how he'll do, but I really hope he does well because I want to have Celtic Rangers back. If his name wasn't Steven Gerrard and it was Joe Smith, would this be happening? No, no. He, he does not have the, I don't think, the coaching qualifications to get this kind of job. But And, and, and once again, that's, that's not a, a shot at him. I mean, one of the I, I got opportunities because I played, and life's not fair, and soccer isn't fair, and you take the opportunities that are given to you, and those doors do open up when you are when you have a name, when you have some sort of notoriety and, and a level of fame. But also uh, the pressure and attention, you better you, you better uh, produce results now because 
as great as a player he was, and we've seen this throughout the ages, as great as a player he, uh, he was, now you're starting a whole new legacy. And what you did on the field, while it will always be respected, uh, you can, to a certain extent, tarnish it. Because what have you done for me lately? Janet Jackson. And that lately right now is happening for Steven Gerrard. And he's going to be uh, judged by what he does in this coaching managerial capacity right now. But as I said, it's, it's, it's an opportunity. And I think it's strategic because if it's just... If it's just any any better, then it's a step in the right direction, and he will get the benefit of being the person that came in and at least help them become better than what they were. I've uh, never spoken to Stephen Jarrett, but I did see him eating once at Boa Steakhouse in Santa Monica. I walked right by him. He was on a table with friends. That's, that was my closest encounter with Brush Stephen with Jarrett. fame? Yes, brush with fame. Wow. I, I opted uh, not to say hello. Unlike when I saw Alessandro Del Piero in a pizza place, and I did say hello, and it was an incredibly awkward exchange. Which I'll, What I'll, did he say to you? Uh, he gave me kind of a very friendly blow-off, like, all right, buddy. I tried to speak in my broken Italian and, and he, was, he was having none of it. He was having none of that. That's yeah. okay, buddy. I mean, I appreciate that you, you know, that you gave it a, a try there. All right, what else? That is it. That's it. All right, once again, that has been our Ask Alexi segment. Uh, use that hashtag, Ask Alexi. Uh, send us all the questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, praise, anything that you want to myself and to Mossy. And as I said, who knows, you may be one of the lucky few that get your question read on the State of the Union podcast. All right, moving on. World Cup Update. Yes, it's time for our World Cup Date, the segment of the show where we talk about the World Cup that is upon us, the Russia 2018 World Cup. We are a mere weeks away from the World Cup starting. Myself and David, we will be in Russia bringing it to you for Fox. And uh, we're just going over the groups and going over the uh, teams. We're going to go into much more in-depth detail as we get closer and closer. But right now, on this podcast this week, we're going to look at Group D, E, and F. Group D with Argentina, Iceland, Croatia, and Nigeria. Group E with Brazil, Switzerland, Costa Rica, and Serbia. And Group F with Germany, Mexico, Sweden, and Korea. All right, Group D. Argentina, we just got done talking about Messi and his continued quest to lead Argentina to the promised land and put to rest any argument about if he is the best player ever to play the game and certainly the best player ever to play with Argentina. They start out against Iceland, we know with the thunderclap and this nation of, what, 330,000 people and this incredible story. We'll be talking a lot about Iceland. Uh, Croatia and Nigeria. Nigeria seems to be a perennial opponent to Argentina at at, at World Cup. So much history between these two teams. Uh, How do you see this group, first off, shaping up? Let's go out on a limb and say we both agree that Argentina is going to win this group. Yes? Yes. Okay. Uh, incidentally, I watched the Argentina-Nigeria match in 2014 at a Rodizio Steakhouse in Brasilia. That's where my mom's side of the family's from. I was visiting during the World Cup. Fantastic meal watching that great game. Ahmed Musa scored twice, but uh, Argentina ended up winning 3-2. I-, I do think there's a disconnect with Argentina. People who have actually followed them throughout qualifying, watched them play all those games and friendlies and stuff, they think this team is a mess and that Messi's pretty much going to have to pull like a Maradona 86 for them to win this World Cup. While there's still this feeling out there amongst people that casually follow this team and just sort of glance at the roster and see some big names and project what they do at club level that think this team is loaded with talent and Messi has this great supporting cast around him and are still very high on Argentina as one of the favorites to go far in this World Cup, potentially win it. So I'm sort of in the camp that thinks this is a mess, which surprised me because I'm a huge Jorge Sampaoli fan. So when they hired him, I thought, okay, this is finally the guy. I was actually genuinely nervous from a Brazilian perspective that they'd finally found the manager that's going to get this right. But he hasn't fixed their problems up front. For all this talent, they still struggle to score goals if it's anybody but Messi. And they actually he actually screwed them up at the back where they've been pretty good the last few major tournaments. But they gave up four to in, against Nigeria in a friendly recently, six to Spain. So I think this team has all sorts of problems going into this World Cup. And like I said, unless Messi pulls like a Maradona 86, I, I'm actually not that high on them as a, as a contender to win this. But no problems getting out of the group. No problems okay. getting out of the group. It's going it's to be fascinating to see. He's got, all, he's got all these attacking players to choose from and which way he's going to go. And by the way, it's not just the established European guys. There's this kid, Lautaro Martinez, who plays for Racing, who's going to go to Inter Milan next season, who's absolutely fantastic. He's killing it in the Libertadores. And he's thrust himself into the conversation as well with Higuain and Aguero and Icardi and Dybala. So th- there's only so many spots. So he's got to figure out who he's going to take, first of all, 
on who he's going to start alongside Messi. Does Dybala start for Argentina this summer? No. Okay. Um, at best, he gets in the squad, but they're just too similar. Uh, the times they've played together, it's been a problem. So I think it's going to be Messi and Di Maria playing off. If he's fit, Aguero. If not, Iguain. Okay, uh, Iceland, incredible story. We saw what they did in, in Euros. They're not afraid of anybody. They have an incredible identity and, and certainly support. They know what they are. They know what they aren't. Do you think they're not surprising anybody at this World Cup? Yes, it'll be a story because of the, the size of the country and what they have done, and, and, and it deserves to be told. But they're certainly not surprising anybody in this group in that they are going to give them games. But do you think that 2018 version of Iceland right now is good enough to get out of this group? Uh, they're good enough to get out of it. I'm not picking them to get out of it. Okay. Um, but yeah, they're not going to be overawed by the occasion because they, they had the, the already like a first run through at the Euros of playing at a major tournament. Uh, one player I do I'm curious about is Colbyn Sig Thornton, who's who's a striker who was like an up and coming star with Ajax a few years ago. Played very well at the Euros, scored against England and France, and then he's had terrible injury problems and he's trying to get back in time to play in this World Cup. They do have Finn Bogason, who we watch a lot in the Bundesliga, so they have another good striker there. And obviously Gilfie Sigurdsson will be the one pulling the strings. It's the same cast you remember yeah. from the Euros, Goodmanson, Bjarnason, uh, Gunnarsson in that midfield, Ragnar Sigurdsson at the back. But yeah, they, they will need a, a striker up there to be able to knock in the goals. And I'm not sure it's going to be Colby and Sig Thornton, so Finn Bogusson might have to step up. But yeah, they'll be good. They'll be competitive. They'll give a good account of themselves, but uh, I don't see them getting out of this group. All right, well, let's move on then. Uh, second, oh, sorry, coming out second, I got Croatia. What do you have? I have Croatia. Okay. Croatia were my pick to go really far in 2014. They let me down. They went out on the group stage, but I'm going to go down this path again because I'm enamored of their talent. To me, their midfield is as good as any team not named Spain. And when you can roll out Modric, Rakitic, Kovacic, Brozovic, and then still have strikers, the caliber of Mandzukic, Mandzukic and Kramaric yeah. and Kalinic and Perisic up there. Um, questions at the back. When, when, when Dejan Lovren is your best defender, to me, that's not... But no, I think they're loaded with talent. And so I think they're, they finished second in this group and could even be a sleeper to make a run here. All right. So I think we both uh, agree that Argentina finishing first, Croatia finishing second. Now, Nigeria, are you... You know, they have a nice Premier League flavor to their squad yeah, with yeah. Iwobi and Musa and Ihe Nacho and Victor Moses and Wilfred Ndidi. But do you see them making things interesting here? No. Or no? Okay. no, I don't. I don't. Okay, with that, moving on to Group E. Oh, it's your group, my friend. Brazil, Switzerland, Costa Rica, and Serbia. Brazil is Brazil. And before we even get into it, uh, we can both agree Brazil finishing first in this group. Uh, Correct. Yes? Yes. No no surprises, no craziness going on, no Costa Rica uh, 2.0 here in 2018 causing problems. Brazil has won its World Cup group in every World Cup uh, from 1982 on, which is an underrated little streak we have going, and I believe it'll continue. This it summer. will, okay. Yeah. So then it's so it's a race for second between right. Switzerland, Costa Rica, and Serbia. Between those three, who do you got? I'm very high on Switzerland. I think they definitely really? finish second. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I, I like that team. Uh, they've got a couple of young players that play in the Bundesliga. Uh, Briel Mbolo is finally fit, and Zakaria. Zakaria uh, how do you pronounce it? Zakaria, who plays for Gladbach, uh, I think is a very good player. And then the guys we know, the Jaka, the Shakiri, those fullback, Lickstein, Lickstein Ricardo Rodriguez. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think they're a good team, and they finish second. Do you do you think that Costa Rica, who was just wonderful and, and just this breath of fresh air from, uh, from a worldwide perspective, obviously we know, him, know them from, uh, from CONCACAF, do you think that this is something that they can replicate and repeat. One of the great goalkeepers in the world in Kaylor Navas, certainly, but they played above themselves in the last World Cup. Yeah, and it's a lot of the same cast of characters. Uh, So, yeah, they're not going to be overawed. Um, Yeah, I I think... Second place is attainable in this group for them, but I, I don't think they'll get it. But yeah, I think that it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. And keep in mind, Marco Urania, uh just recently, uh, he's out for a while with a broken orbital or whatever it ends up being. So he's going to be a race to get back for, for them up top. And we know the damage that he can do uh, for uh, for both LAFC and for uh, for Costa Rica. So who do you, so you have Switzerland coming out second? Yeah. I'm going to say Serbia. Yeah, we haven't even touched on Serbia. Uh, They have guys, Kolarov, Ivanovic, Matic. Yep, Matic. Uh, Can I I make a larger point about Brazil? Yeah. You have no idea how good it feels to have a a legitimate Brazil squad again going into this tournament. I, I hated the 2010 and 2014 teams. To me, those are two of the least talented squads Brazil has ever brought 
to to a World Cup. You could sort of talk yourself into them winning those tournaments because it's Brazil, and in 2014 they were at home. But then you took a step back and looked at boy, Fred, Joe. I mean, what? This time around, it, it looks the part of a Brazil squad. If you look at the names, it impresses you. It jumps off the page. It's all guys with pedigree that play in big clubs, and so. And I like the way the team plays. I like the coach. So you know, whenever people ask me about Brazil, and I say I like the team, they assume that means I think they're going to win it. And and in fact, I'm right. not picking Brazil to win this World Cup. I'm picking Spain. Right. But I'm just looking forward to having a Brazil team again that I like. That ah, well, that's that's I'm happy for you. Yes, you are. So you are bullish in 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 a way that look, everybody's bullish because it's Brazil and what they have done. But in 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 an added way for this World Cup, not only are you bullish that they're going to be successful, but you're excited about the fact that you get to watch a Brazil team that at least on paper, at least the way you're looking at it right now, is going to be interesting and pretty and and beautiful and entertaining. Exactly. I'm happy for you. All right, so you have Brazil finishing first, Switzerland finishing second. I have Brazil finishing first and Serbia finishing second. We move on to the last group that we're reviewing here today, and we'll get to the last two uh, in future episodes. Group F, Germany, Mexico, Sweden, and Korea. Now, when this came out, and I know we talked last week about what Rob Stone thinks is the group of death, I happen to believe that Group F is the group of death with the quality and the shall we say, the parody. Now, I know Germany's defending world, world champs, and yes, they are above Mexico, Sweden, and Korea. But I, I, I have, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm going to say that Germany is going to win the group, and I know I'm not going out on, on a limb, but I would look at this as my group of death in terms of the ability for any of these teams uh, to do things and to any of these teams certainly to finish, finish second. But with everybody knocking each, uh, knocking each other, I'm looking for some strange things to happen in this group. Agree or disagree? Well, strange. I think it's a battle for second. I expect Germany to win the group. And and, and by the way, Marco Royce's form is a game changer. I'm a huge Marco Royce fan. Yep. I think if he's fit, uh, he not only makes the squad but goes right into the starting lineup. And it's going to be interesting to see how he juggles all that young talent they have now: the Leroy Sanes, the Werners, the Goretzkas, the Sulas, the Kimmichs, and and uh, and then the older guard that still wants to be, you know, Muller and, and Boateng and, and guys like that, Kroos, Kadira, that they still want it to be about them. And so he's going to have to juggle that dynamic. It's going to be interesting, but they are loaded with talent. So I, I think Germany definitely win that group. And then I lean Mexico second. The interesting thing with Sweden is uh, we talked about this on a, on a couple of weeks ago. The coach has said thanks, but no thanks to Zlatan, which is a big call. Big I, call. I can imagine if they get knocked out, Zlatan exactly. might send out a, a tweet. Well, you know. <laughs> I, I don't worry. It would not surprise me in the least if, say, Mexico tied Germany. Their first game is against Germany. Germany-Mexico, right, right. a delicious, delicious affair uh, for, that first, for that first game. It would not surprise me in the least if uh, Mexico and Germany tied, if they, get a, if they get a point. I'm not worried, honestly, about Mexico playing against teams that are better than them. They, they rise to the occasion, and they, they, seem to, they seem to batten down the hatches much better when they are faced with an opponent that is superior. I'm worried about them... Whether Korea and Sweden are superior, that's, that's a different argument. But if Mexico believes that Sweden and Korea are, are inferior, I worry about their mentality going into those games and their ability to produce and to get points in those games. Now, we've talked on this podcast about how Chucky Lozano is now Mexico's best player, mm-hmm. clearly, and not Chicharito. Uh, you've gone as far as to say that you think Mexico are a better team at times when they don't have Chicharito on the field. I think Chicharito is predictable. He's very good at what he does, but I think his... I think his runs and the way that he plays is not only predictable, but ultimately I think people adapt to it and adapt to it even within games. So yes, yes, he can score and yes, he is a, a goal scorer, but I would be much more fear, fearful of a Chucky Lozano because I can't predict what he is going to do as opposed to a Chicharito, which I know what's going to happen. And he's world-class at what he does and his ability to skirt that line and to make those diagonal runs and then get in, get on the end of service is, is, is wonderful. But once you've seen it, you, you get it and you adjust even within the game. And two things in that group. In the absence of Zlatan, Sweden star will be Forsberg, who is a player I love, uh, playmaker for Leipzig. So I'm looking forward to watching him this summer. And then don't sleep on South Korea. They, they are not a bad team at all. Uh, Hung Min Son is, is their big star, the striker for Tottenham. They also have the striker for Salzburg, who we watch in the Europa League, Huang. 
And so, you know, they, they could be frisky too in this group. Like I said, when I say it's a, it's a battle for second, I, I, I throw them in there too. It, it would not surprise me if they snuck in there, but, uh, but I'm going with Mexico. I'm going with Mexico too. But, but like you said, I think that this is so hard to call. I do believe that this is the group of death, uh, regardless of what Rob Stone says. All right. So that has been our World Cup date. We have a couple more groups to get to. As I said, we'll get to them in uh, a future episode. The World Cup is coming and it's coming fast and I can't wait and we will talk a whole lot more about about uh, the players and the stories on and off the field and the coaches and the history. And, and obviously, uh, once the game starts, uh, we will be broadcasting from uh, Russia, both the television ver- version of us and the podcast will continue on in uh, some different types of forms. So we'll do another World Cup date next week. Moving on. The Back Three. All right, we're coming to the end. We have hit the time when we do our Back Three. We talk about some big stories and games and moments or Anything up there uh, when it comes to the game. All right, Mossy, uh, our back three. What are the three things that we're talking about? Give us the first one. All right, first up, let's put a ribbon on the Champions League and Europa League semifinals and maybe a, a quick look ahead to the final. So uh, Champions League it will, in fact, be Real Madrid and Liverpool. As it should be. As Real should. Madrid somehow gets past Bayern Munich, which was utterly mind-boggling to me because Bayern were such the better team over two legs. They have to be absolutely sick. That is a stomach punch elimin- elimination if I've ever seen one. Their second leg performance at the Bernabeu where they had 60% possession, 22 shots, 11 corners. And you think of all the little moments in that tie, The uh, obviously the Ulreich horrible mistake in the second leg, the Rafinha mistake in the first leg, the Marcelo handball, which should have been a penalty, all the missed chances, the Kaylor Nava saves. I mean, Bayern to me have to be, their whole season was about beating Real Madrid winning the Champions League, they have to be sick to their stomach of how yeah, they went out. They do. And from Real Madrid, it's uh, the great escape. I mean, they, they are constantly getting away, and yet it just seems destined yeah. to happen. And uh, I, I think they are going to have to play their best game because they have not played their best game. They are going to have to save their best game, and it, I don't think it would surprise anybody if it did happen in this last game uh, against Liverpool. They're not going to be able to... The soccer gods, you know, they have a wicked sense of humor. And if Real Madrid goes about their business in the way that they have done in the past couple of games, the soccer gods will say, no, not today. And so I think they're going to have to play, you know, not a, near, not a perfect game, but a whole lot better. They can't get away with the stuff that they've been getting away with. Now, I mentioned Keller Navas made some great saves. The best save anybody, anybody made in the Champions League semis was Trent Alexander-Arnold pairing that shot from Roma. <laughs> and I, you tweeted about this. I am with you 100%. Just make that freaking rule. If it hits your hand, it's a handball. Uh, I'm so sick of this whole subjectiveness they've interjected into this whole uh, handball thing. And, and, and to me, it's just making something more complicated than it needs to be. And, and to me, that's the call that referees are getting the most wrong. Now, we saw it with Marcelo. We saw it with Trent Alexander-Arnold. And it's driving me crazy. And if you want to see how this manifests... Go watch the Clasico. Messi scores his goal. And if you watch the way that it was defended, if you watch Sergio Ramos, one of the great defenders in the game right now, he approaches that shot with his arms behind his back. And that's, that, that was my argument and has been my argument. Look, players are already adapting to the fact that nobody knows what the hell the handling law ultimately is. We can read it. But as far as interpreting it and understanding it, it's all over the map because it is so subjective and, and what is deliberate and what's not, uh, what's not deliberate. And that's, so that's why I have said, just make it if it hits your arm or your, uh, uh, or, or your hand, it is, uh, it's a foul. And everyone says, well, well you're going to hit it off against players' arms. Well, people are already defending with their arms behind. So I, I completely understand uh, what you're saying. The fact that there is no VAR right now, we live now in a VAR world. And when I say we, those of us that watch Major League Soccer or if you watch Serie A or if you watch Bundesliga, this is our new reality. And it's very, very difficult. How are you going to keep us down after we've seen VAR? It's, it's, almost, it's next to impossible to go back and watch games in the previous way because I'm now watching games, whether it's Champions League or whether it's Europa or whether it's leagues that don't have VAR, I'm watching it with VAR eyes. And I'm saying, yes, but if VAR existed, this would be this would be called and this is how it would it, it change. And it gets very, very frustrating for those of us that have not only are aboard it, but are well down the tracks when it comes to the VAR to, ha- to have this regression and to have to come back to what amounts to the Stone Age now of games that don't have VAR. And it's frustrating. We saw it with the, uh, with the Roma situation. It must be incredibly frustrating for 
coaches, players, and owners alike when it doesn't go well for them and they don't have VAR because this technology exists. Now, you called both legs of the Arsenal Atletico Europa League semifinal. I, I read a fantastic article. I want to give credit where credit's due. It was in that website, Zonal Marking, some guy named Michael Cox. Okay. And he was positing the theory that defending is something of a lost art because we're living in this era of the super club and clubs are so concerned with their brand. They want to be viewed as sexy and exciting and attack-minded and scoring goals. And so something's been lost at the other end. And even when you watch clubs like Real Madrid and Bayern that have the money to buy every, every defender in the world, uh, they still look vulnerable back there, and it's manifested itself. You see these scores in the Champions League now, 4-2, 5-2. And so he was making this case that Atletico Madrid stick out like a sore thumb now, winning the way they do, and that it's it's given him like a, a greater appreciation for it. That Because in past years, even amongst the, the giant clubs, some of them were more defensive-minded than others. Now they're all trying to win with offense, and then you have this one club over here, Atletico, that's doing it differently and succeeding. Is that how you see it too? I mean, this is, the, is what we saw in the Champions League, did that give you more appreciation for what Atletico do? Look, I can appreciate and I can respect a wonderful defensive effort and the, the, the physical requirements and the mental requirements to be able to do something like that. I can even at times find beauty in it, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that that is something that people want to watch. That's being disingenuous. And this this sanctimony and this elitist type of view that, well, you don't understand the game and you can't possibly understand it because you don't see the nuance and the layer of what defense is and, and, and how tactically proficient you have to be and all you care about is goals. You're damn right. Yes, I care about goals. And this is coming from a defender. It's not that I don't appreciate good defending or good defenders or that I don't recognize that maybe the defense... Uh, appreciation is less than it has been in the past. I like goals. I love goals. I, I look to games for entertainment, whether it's the individual player or the way that the team plays. Diego Simeone, look, he's great. What, what makes him great? To be quite honest, the most interesting part of it is the way he looks and the way that he acts, because it's not his team on the field. And it goes hand in hand, and I get it. That's what he's trying to play. But if you're, if you're Arsenal right now, and you're looking to someone to come in and take over from Arsene Wenger. Why do you want Diego Simeone if that's how he's going to play? Now, Matt, maybe he's just said, said, this is how, this is the only way I can play. You don't want that. You want somebody that is going to go out there the way Jurgen Klopp does and say, come hell or high water, we are going to attack. I'm going to get the players that I need to do it, but when I have them, we are going to attack. And at times, you know what? That's going to mean, that's going to mean we're going to be defensively not as solid as maybe the great Italian teams of the 80s. That's okay, though. But this, this whole concept that you know, once again, that that people throw out there and this criticism of those that you can't possibly understand this game and this should this is something to be cherished and this is something to be exalted. No, it's it, it it's not. I can I can appreciate it, but I'm not going to tell you that you have to appreciate it or that I'm better than you because you can't see the beauty in it. Now, you're not a big NBA guy, but you grew up in Michigan, so I think you might get this reference. I've often compared Atletico to the bad boy Pistons because mm -hmm. they came along during this otherwise glamorous era of the NBA where you had the Lakers and Celtics and Magic and Bird and Michael Jordan – and yet this team that, you know, played playing the way they did. And so to me, Atletico are kind of kind of similar. You're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> but here is the difference. Uh, not the difference in, in the, uh, the sports, obviously. But the difference is the bad boys, okay, while everybody understood that they were getting results, they, the, the bad boys were respected and loved by, you know who? By Detroit. That's it. That's it. Yeah, the antics were, were fun to kind of see every once in a while. But when it came to the L.A. Lakers and Showtime, everybody respected and loved that. Even people from Detroit recognized that, hey, this is something to behold. And that's the difference. When you are expansive and when you are attacking and when you are creative and entertaining and you have incredible personalities and you run rampant and you go all over the place – you will transcend your locale, not just your, your fan base and just your fans of your team. There will be others that want to watch this because of what you're doing. If you don't, if you're just the bad boys or if you're just Diego Simeone and Atletico Madrid, yeah, you'll appear to Atletico Madrid faithful, you'll appeal, you'll appeal to the Pistons faithful, but that's it. 
And in this day and age, you mentioned it, in terms of global domination, you need to appeal to everybody. And the way that you do that, and the fastest way that you do that, is by being attacking, is by being entertaining, and is by scoring goals. There you go. All right. We touched on bad refereeing in the Champions League semis. Next up is today's Classico. We're taping this on a Sunday afternoon. It's been a couple hours since Barcelona and Real Madrid played to a 2-2 draw at Camp Nou. This means Barcelona preserved their unbeaten record in La Liga. They are probably now going to go on and be the first unbeaten team in 86 years in La Liga. But uh, listen, I've I've said this before. I'll say it again. Uh, Spain has the best players in the world and the worst referees. And we see this time and time again. This was a refereeing apocalypse. (laughs) Spanish referees just have this innate ability to lose control of games and we saw it again today and, and then you'd go through it and and you know it always with these big uh, La Liga games then you start to debate well did, did the good football override the bad refereeing did it spoil it for you because you do have guys like Messi and Ronaldo and Suarez and Bale and Iniesta doing these amazing things and then you have the bad refereeing and then also you play this game of like adding up the bad calls and who got it the worst and who has more right to it and I, by the way I thought Real Madrid clearly got it the worst today and you know Francis Silva can bite my head off all she wants but <laughs> And so we can go through it if you want. But to me, I guess my overall point is, is today the bad refereeing to me overshadowed the good football. I thought it, it really spoiled that game for me, which was what got off to a great start, was exciting. And then the bad calls started happening one after the other. And you're just like, oh, my God. I mean, well, well, we can't assume that everybody saw it. But if you did see it, there were there were calls that had VAR been used, <laughs> uh, they would have overturned things, both on Messi's goal, because there was a foul. Blatant foul, Suarez on Blatant, Veron. blatant foul. But then, if you're Barcelona, you say, yes, but, what do you say? Well, yeah, but there should have been a red card earlier Yeah, they think Sergio Roberto got red card in the first half. You know, unfortunately, Bian couldn't find time to show us a, a good angle of it. So, But uh, by all <laughs> accounts, it was it was the correct decision. He, he punched him. And so, but then Barcelona's big argument was they should have been down to 10-2. Gareth Bale, for a stomp on Umtiti, and Bale ends up scoring the equalizer. So, okay, those two, we could argue, cancel out. Uh, but then you have the penalty, you have the the the, the foul Marcelo. on the lead up to the Barcelona goal, and then the Marcelo penalty, which the, the insinuation that a Brazilian would ever dive, I resent. Uh, <laughs> if Marcelo goes down, then you know it's a foul, and so that was a clear foul there. I, I guess the other one, the other way was right after Barcelona scored to make it two one, they scored again to make it three one, and there was an offside in the build up to the play, and I guess he wasn't offside, Rakitic. So there's another one that. Ca- but why but the fact that we're having this conversation? We should be talking about the goals and what a great game this was. I mean, it, it drives me crazy. So do you think that if Barcelona do now go on to be undefeated, is it tainted? Is, it, is, there, is there an asterisk? No, but I actually think Real Madrid come out the happier of the two sides today because Barcelona, they wanted like an emphatic home win over Real Madrid. They, they've been hearing all this stuff about how Real, what Real Madrid doing in the Champions League is overshadowing their achievements. They resent it. They really wanted uh, you know, a big win today to like add some gloss to their season, and they didn't get it at home. So I think Barcelona are the more disappointed of the two. Real Madrid, eh, you know, we got maybe screwed out of the win, but we still got a point, and we're looking ahead to the Champions League final, and, and you know, we're fine. Now, we haven't even touched on the biggest development of all in this game. Cristiano Ronaldo had to come off injured at halftime. Listen, it's it's not that long between now and the Champions League final, so if it's any kind of real injury, it becomes an issue. But he was he was jumping around screaming at the referee though. I mean, yeah, he yeah. <laughs> I I tend to think it wasn't bench. anything serious because they he has the Champions League final in the World Cup to look forward to, and this was a meaningless game to Real Madrid in terms of the standings. It was probably a precaution, but you know, still, I mean, anytime you see Cristiano Ronaldo limp off of a, a classical game, it's a big story. So. All right, we what's the uh, third thing we have all right, here? This is all you. We'll end on this note. We're looking for an MLS quarter season recap from you. What, what do you see as the big storylines, talking points, surprises? Oh, my goodness. Uh, okay, so how about rapid fire here? Seattle Sounders sitting in last place. Is there going to be a coaching change? This is not what they want. Seattle actually, after coming off of an MLS Cup, now they sit in last place. They have had problems in terms of the public statements with Garth Lagerwey having to come out and talk about, yes, they are going to still spend money, and don't worry, we're not going to be overtaken by everybody else. But look, uh, when it comes down to it, they're sitting in in, uh, last place. When it comes to the LA Galaxy, it started out better, and now they've lost multiple games in a row here and now they're underneath that red line of playoffs has it worn off when it comes to Zlatan and has the arrival of Zlatan made them 
give themselves a, uh, a second look and say, is this the best possible thing? Well, they signed him, so they're going to have to figure out. Well, Ziggy Schmidt in particular is going to have to figure, uh, figure it out right now because it is not where it should be given the talent that they have. Portland Timbers are still sitting underneath that line under Giovanni Savarese, but, uh, but getting better. Uh, up at the top, Sporting KC, they just grind you out and they, uh, and they figure out how to, uh, ways to get points. LAFC, I think, is a huge, huge story, and it's uh, a great story for that club sitting in second place right now. Their second game uh, that they were able to get a point at the new stadium on this road stand that they have right now. Bob Bradley still putting together a team that I think is going to be in flux now for a while, and yet he still able to, is able to get not just away points, but just points in general right now. That's going to be a wonderful story and one to, uh, one to watch as we go on. DC United opening a new stadium but sitting in last place right now. That's never a good look. Toronto, Toronto FC coming off of what a lot of people saw as the best MLS team in history uh, and winning MLS Cup, uh, now sitting uh, in 10th out of 11 teams in their, in their conference, the Philadelphia. Union, which is just consistent in terms of its inability to get wins. Chicago Fire, after a great year last year, not doing well this year. The New England Revolution, under our uh, former colleague Brad Friedel, doing uh, doing much better, and they finally resolved that whole Lee Win situation. He goes to LAFC, but in doing so, I think that they are a winner in that they stood their ground. They, they uh, Brad Friedel and company over there believed that this was something that they needed to do in order to establish their authority, and he certainly looks like. It it's my way or the highway when it comes to uh, players going forward. Columbus Crew, with the continued talk of them possibly moving. Uh, New York Red Bulls, they just do what they do, and they just spanked NYCFC in that Hudson River uh, Derby 4 nothing, 2 nothing after the first four minutes. It wasn't even a contest. Uh, Orlando City finally back on track, getting their wins under Jason Christ, who is still under the hot seat. New York City, as we mentioned, e- even though they lost to the New York Red Bulls, they still sit in second, and Patrick Vieira still talk about him possibly going to some different places when it comes to a coaching uh, over in Europe. We'll see how long he lasts at NYCFC. He's done great job there. I love his philosophy. You talk about identity and, and entertaining in terms of the way that they play. I love that. And then Atlanta United. They were good last year, and they're that much better this year, and they are worth the price of admission. Must see television whenever Atlanta's playing. That's my my MLS roundup, if you will, as fast as I can possibly do it. Now, you mentioned Brad Friedel's success. Might that prompt another MLS team to go the Fox route again? Are you expecting a call? Whatever team that is, they should be so lucky. All right? I mean, uh, people ask me all the time, about you know, and this is a good thing to end on here, uh, Mossy, because you know, as as I transition into our one big thing, which is where we end our podcast, I get asked all the time about coaching, and I have ever since I stopped playing. It's understandable. Um, I'm pretty awesome, okay, and uh, to have me coach your team, anybody would want that. Uh, the reality is, and I tell everybody this uh, every single time, I, I don't want to coach. All right, if there came a point in the future where I wanted to coach, I would do everything in my power to make that happen. And I would knock on doors and pound down doors and make every call that I possibly could to, t- to try to make that happen. I don't want to coach because I have been fortunate enough to find something that I love. And that is doing what we're doing, all right? And whether it's in front of the camera or whether it's doing podcasts, it's being in the broadcast world and being in the commentary world and being in the pundit world, I guess you would, you would call it. I love this. And we meet so many people in our industry, David, that are unfortunately just passing through and waiting for something better to come along, a, a job in the front office, a head coaching job, whatever it ends up being. And you can get away with that for a little bit. But ultimately, I believe that it will manifest itself in your performance. Uh, and you know, whether it's your performance here in a podcast setting or performance on television. And ultimately, I think you're cheating yourself and you're really cheating the viewer. And I don't ever want to do that. I want to be surrounded by people that are, in, uh, that, that are invested as much as I am, that have ownership of this, that are junkies for this game as it relates to doing it in the broadcasting world. That's who I want to be surrounded with. And I'm very, very fortunate that I, that I am day in and day out. And you know it when you're not. And you can tell it in somebody's performance when they are not invested. That's what I want to do. And if there ever came a point where I wasn't invested and that's not something that I wanted to do, then I would, I would leave and go and do what I wanted to do. Because as we know, uh, life is too short. But I'm really, really happy with what I do. I recognize 
that there are people out there that would love to have my job, and rightfully so, because it's the best job in the world. And I don't take it for granted. Not a day passes that I don't remind myself how fortunate I am to be doing this, uh, doing this job. And there are people that would give their, as I said, their left arm to be in this position. And uh, they can pry it from my cold, dead hands <laughs> because I do not want to go anywhere else. This is what I want to do. This is what I love doing. And I am incredibly fortunate, as I said, to be able to do this day in and day out. So when it comes to your question about coaching, I don't see that happening anytime soon, but you never know. Things, things can change, but I'm just incredibly blessed to be able to be doing this. Yeah, Lee Corso, the longtime college football analyst for ESPN, uh, when they ask him about having retired from coaching, he says, I never retired, just nobody's giving me a job in 30 years. <laughs> Well, uh, we'll, see what, we'll see what happens in the future. But uh, until that time, we will keep cranking out these State of the Union podcasts. Uh, you can find us, as always, on all the different sh- social media platforms. What are you on Twitter again, Mr. Mossy? At Statman Mossy. At Statman Mossy. I am at Alexi Lalas. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can hit us up, uh, as I said, on Twitter. Uh, all of the different platforms out of there. If you do have questions or comments, use that Ask Alexi hashtag because uh, it makes a difference. And as I said, who knows, we might be asking your question or talking about your, uh, your comment if you do use that Ask Alexi hashtag on uh, on future shows. All right, my friend, we have come to the end of yet another State of the Union podcast. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. We will talk again next week. And as always, size the deck.